read God's word and then we'll hear the prayer. First one's real simple, but it's not. Where are you seated right now? Where are you sitting? Is this guy crazy? Pastor Bob, get back, quick. Look around, where you're seated. At home, where are you seated? I'm going to add to that. No, the Bible is. Here's another question. What's the greatest compliment you ever received in your life? Or most important thing you began to know about yourself? You see, for me, I got held back in the fourth grade. You know, my, my fourth grade teacher loved me so much. She said, Bruce, could you come back one more year? Uh, that's my adult spin on it. When I was a kid, people would say, yeah, Bruce got held back. And uh, if you have brothers who are older, they, they're edifying. No, Bruce flunked. <laughs> he didn't get held back. He flunked. Yeah, we, we, didn't, we didn't code it. But in seventh grade, I only did that once. Mr. Hottie at Walker Junior High, I noticed that the gal sitting next to me, I still remember this, I can go back to this, and she had three wrong, and I only had two wrong, but she got a 95, and I got a 92, and I could do math, and I said, Mr. Hottie, this isn't right. She got three wrong, and she got a higher percentage. Mr. Hottie looked at me and he said, Kuiper, I grade you on a different scale because I expect more out of you. Wow. No one had expected more out of me academically. That really changed my life in many, many ways. I'm going to say something to you. No, the Holy Spirit, Paul's going to say something to you that I hope changes your life. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Hear the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why well, I asked you the question. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. 
for we are his workmanship, handiwork, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we thank thee for this opportunity to gather in thy house once again. We pray that thou wilt, as we open this word, place it upon our hearts and enter our hearts. Lord, we pray that thou be with Pastor Kuiper and give him the words to say with the help of thy Holy Spirit and that we may go here changed and show those that we come in contact with that we are Christians by our actions and our deeds. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are note-takers, take out your notes here. For those of you who are not note-takers, take it out. <laughs> Become note-takers, maybe. Okay, opportunity to follow along. The Bible said that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and we all have received grace upon grace in John 1. Grace upon grace. And Jesus is the grace multiplier. You know what that image is like in the wording, grace upon grace. Now, during a stormy day or a windy day, go to Grand Haven and go to the lakeshore and get your best shovel. I mean, your biggest shovel, you, you, farmers even with your snow plows, go to Lake Michigan and on a windy day start pushing those waves back. That's what grace upon grace means. You can't stop it. You just can't stop it. And Jesus shows us the manifold grace that he brings. He's a grace multiplier. Now, we come to Ephesians 2. And remember this. It already, we've already been set up in Ephesians 1 that we are adopted. I think last time I was here, I did preach on that of Mephibosheth being adopted. And you know how you got to read the Bible, especially Ephesians, especially Ephesians 2, as an older brother. Imagine this. You're raised in an orphanage. And finally, you were chosen. And you were taken out of the orphanage. And, you know, I mean, the soup had maggots. It was terrible. It was a terrible place. And now, the king adopts you, and you're in his palace, and you've met the king. And at night, you get to sleep in the same room with Big Brother. And he tells all the adopted children about all the privileges and all the beauty of now being a child of the king. And Big Brother loves to brag about father. And loves to say to his new siblings, this is the father who adopted us. And here's what he's done for us. And now to the Ephesians. You have to understand that the Ephesians live in the Roman Empire where to become a Christian, you give up everything. You give up power and prestige. You give up hope for the future in this life. But you exchange it for hope in the life to come. But Paul wants to make it extremely clear that what you get in return far outweighs 
anything that you have given up. As a matter of fact, and you don't have to wait till you die. You get it, and you get it now. And that's what he's trying to tell the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's telling you and me these same profound, beautiful truths of not just who we are, but whose we are. So come with me on this journey. We're going to look at grace upon grace. We're going to first look at God's regal authority, which condemns everybody. You say, well, Pastor, yeah, you are doing good. Now, this first point doesn't sound too good. Yes, it does. Listen. Listen to this. Here's, here's, what, it, here's what the Bible says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You see, it begins with us. And we brought nothing to the table. And you're going to see this over and over again. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. And matter of fact, Paul wants to make it extremely clear that we didn't make a phone call to the king and told him to come to the orphanage the king came to the orphanage and he took us in our ratty, sinful state. So the first thing that we see here is the fallen self. And we're going to get three S's here of the fall. In which you once walked, every one of you. You know what? You're sitting next to a, a, a sin-soaked, once sinner. Following the course of this world, society, that's the next one, society. People will come up to me and say, oh, pastor, you know what they did in Washington now? And I don't like a lot of the things either, don't get me wrong. I can, kasonic, any of you Dutch people know what that means? It's the word sonic, some of you do. It's a word you can say from the pulpit without being fired. Uh, it means crabbing, complaining. It's what the people of God were not allowed into the promised land because they kept complaining. And I can do that. But you know what? What do you expect from a fallen world? What do you expect from a fallen world? We live in a fallen world, and Paul wants to make it extremely clear that not only is the society fallen but we ourselves are fallen and he just wants to put all the cards on the table and then he just multiplies it by saying this following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience so there's self it's fallen there's society that's sick and fallen and then there's satan and Paul just makes it clear in this particular section, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul pulls no punches. He puts everyone on an equal plane. Why, why does God do that? Why does he do that? Because he's honest. God's royal authority condemning everybody. You see, my friends, we can listen to Freud and 
all the other psychiatrists and political social thinkers and say, you're a good guy, you're a good person, you just need more self-esteem. The Bible wants to make it extremely clear. We're all in a hot mess. We are, by nature, children of wrath. Wow. That Adam really put us in a predicament, didn't he? Created the image of God, and the image of God, we are created male and female, we are created. And then sin enters the world. And Paul, the greatest theologian, I think of the New Testament, they're all great because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, But Paul wants to make it clear. God wants to make it clear. The Holy Spirit wants this to reverberate throughout the ages. Why does he do that? First of all, authority. Where are you getting your authority? I get my authority from the Bible. The Bible says we're all that way. You know why? Because it evens the playing field. We just had a guy downtown at Grace Legacy Builders for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. His name is uh, Dan Notley. I, I can say that. And he was raised in California. He didn't even know what a church was. He honestly, he got invited to church once and he said, what's that? I mean, can you imagine being that ignorant? For those of us who were raised uh, going to church morning and night, you know what, you know what we considered a liberal in my house? Someone who came to the evening service but didn't wear a tie. That was a liberal. We knew what church was, Sunday school. We knew what midweek program was. Dan had no idea. And in 1999, he's playing for the New York Yankees, and he wins the World Series. And he's partying with all his buddies, and he's going over the George Washington Bridge, and he says to the driver, can you just stop because I reached the pinnacle of my career and it's empty and it's nothing and I want to jump off the bridge. And the, the, the limo driver goes, well, it's kind of rush hour. I can't stop right now. <laughs> That's what he got. You know what Dan Notley's doing today? He's preaching the gospel in Jenison, Michigan. He's an ordained pastor. See, I was raised like I told you, like many of you were. But God wants to make this extremely clear. This gospel begins by leveling the playing field. And nobody has an advantage when it comes to the grace of God. So God's first thing about God's grace, besides our adoption that we saw here, was God's regal authority <laughs> condemning everybody. No pride. No self-righteousness allowed into this room. Well, Pastor, I thought you were going to tell some nice things. <laughs> well, first, the bad news. Come with me to verse 4. But, that's kind of what that is. It's a contrast. It wakes you up. Some of these kids might have been almost sleeping, and now I woke them up, huh? Yeah, that wakes us up as adults. It says to us right here, but God, God's the centerpiece of this all. God is the one who's working. God's the one who's doing. And here's his characteristic. 
be enriched in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the next point is God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, we've all heard that before, right? God's riches, God who is rich in mercy. He encounters us when we are like everybody else in the world. In fact, it gets worse. When we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. I I, got to illustrate this. How many of you have ever been to a funeral? Okay, this will work. Okay? No hope of life. This brings us back to Lazarus. Not two days, four days. This principle in Ephesians becomes alive in the life of Jesus when he encounters Lazarus, a dead man. Lazarus, come out! Now, I don't want to deter the fact that we have to make a decision. I mean, we have to, we have to receive the gospel. We have to claim our salvation. But what does Lazarus do? No. Yeah, he, he comes out. That's the same thing with you and with me. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God, who's rich in his love, took us while we were dead, dead, and he made us alive in Christ. This is God's riches, God's rich love, God's rich mercy, God's rich election, God's rich salvation, God's electing love set upon you and me. He calls us by name out of darkness and death and into the light of his beloved son. That's salvation. That's justification. Really, theologically, you could go with the first part is condemnation. And now, theologically, we get justification. Just as if I've never sinned. And you know what? That would be enough. This would be enough to give you the benediction and say, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is what the Reformation was all about. That God, a holy God, took an unholy people and made them holy. And I, I, you put the W in there just to, it's not on paper. All of his, holy his. But that's not where Paul stops, and that's not where the New Testament stops, and that's not why Jesus was so anxious to go up into heaven. Yes, to be with his Father, to be reunited, and because the Trinity had always been so intertwined and interconnected, but Jesus emptied himself, but he also wanted to send the Holy Spirit to give us all of these blessings. Now listen, listen to this. Now we get to the next section. We get to verses 6 to 9. Listen to what happened. We not only got saved, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
How many of you would have been happy with salvation, right? We all would have been. But now I'm telling you, Paul's telling you, the power of the Holy Spirit is telling you that you and I have been raised up. That's why I asked you, where are you seated? My friends, if you are a blood-bought soul of Jesus Christ, if you have said yes to the gospel, you and I are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in Christ. Paul reiterates this and he says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, you see, earlier in Ephesians, Paul is talking about the ultimate power of the universe. And he said, God took his power and he raised up this dead man, Jesus Christ, and lifted him up and raised him up so he is no longer dead. He is alive. And now Paul is just setting us up in Ephesians 2.6 to say that he's raised us up and he seated us with him. In Christ Jesus. Now, Pastor, I don't quite believe you. Well, believe the Bible. The Bible is telling us right now that you and I are currently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know, when I read this, and, and I've read Ephesians over and over again. It's my favorite book of the Bible. But about 10 years ago, I was reading this, and I, I was thinking, hold it, wait a minute. Is it saying that right now I'm seated with God? And I, I, I kept it silent. How many of you ever in your devotions heard something so wonderful, and you think, could this be true? And so then I went up to a pastor friend, and I said, what do you think of that? He says, of course, Bruce, come with me to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 45. Here's what question and answer 45 says of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. So that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. That's, again, justification. But listen, listen to number two of question and answer 45. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Let me read that again. By his power, we too are already now, now, resurrected to a new life. And then it's a guarantee of our future inheritance if you keep on reading. But I want to concentrate on that idea of right now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the royal physician, meaning that he was so up there, if you're into this English royalty stuff, that he was the physician to the king and queen, the royalty. And when Martin Lloyd-Jones got saved and read through the Bible, he said, I'm resigning from everything, and I'm going to preach this gospel. And when Lloyd-Jones got to the book of Ephesians, he wrote six volumes this thick on it. And when he got to this particular verse, here's in essence what he said. This is perhaps the most profound thing one human being can say to another. 
that they are currently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Think about that. That's why I asked you, where are you seated? Now, here's the implication and application of that. How many of you have ever had a bad day? Maybe one or two. Okay, for, for, the, other, for the rest of us, you can just listen, because this has been real therapy for me and maybe the other four. Um, I go down the road, and we live in a fallen world, and I fumble and stumble. I think, I'm not going through the S-curve right now. I'm currently seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in Christ Jesus. I'm a child of the King. Wow. And I'm complaining about this or that. I kind of feel like the children of Israel. Uh, you know, we could have gone back to Egypt. We could have got, we got good fish there. No. I'm currently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in Christ Jesus. What a privilege. What an honor. What a position. What prestige. What power. Have you ever thought of the power of that position? Have you ever thought of what it means to be a child of God? Think about that. I don't know if you have friends whose parents own companies, but I have a friend, is, uh, and they own a lot, and we'd be driving around, and he'd go, oh, just a second. He'd open the gate, and boom, he'd fill up both tanks on Dad's nickel. Go through, oh, you need a bulldozer? Boom, Dad's nickel. Boom, Dad's. Because he's a child of the king. But guess what? The Bible is saying that we get that future inheritance today, one for us by our brother Jesus. That's what we participate in. That's who the Bible says we are. That is a profound statement. And in theological terms, it's glorification. And listen to your outline. God's redeemed, adoring Christ eternally. And might I add right now, I have a friend, Henry Metema, and he says to me, he's a wonderful theologian, and he's a wonderful pastor in Malawi. He's a graduate of Puritan Seminary, and he says to me, we've spent hours and hours with each other, and he even reminded me, I was just in Malawi, I'll talk about that in Sunday school. He said, Pastor Bruce, you remember, I've always been very grateful for everything you have ever taught me and everything we ever did, but you know I disagree with you on this. It is justification, sanctification, and then glorification. And he's right. In a theological sense, that's how we learn it. But I said, Hendrik, Hendrik. My grandpa is Dutch and named Hendrik. I say, Hendrik, you do not disagree with me. You disagree with the Apostle Paul. Let's get that right. <laughs> and we still go back and forth on that. Did I not just read from the holy and inspired word that we are justified? And then Paul said, 
were seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is a profound statement. Now, it goes even further. Here's where sanctification comes in. And by the way, now in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, uh, so that no one can boast. That is the gospel in miniature. Uh, Martin Luther said John three sixteen was the gospel in miniature. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't say it to argue with Dr. Luther, the great man, the great man of God. But Reformed theologians love this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's in Titus 3, 5, that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. It is the mantra. It is the motto. It is what we cling to dearly as Reformed theologians. So, and now I want to get to the last one. So we have our condemnation, our justification, our glorification, and now here's our sanctification that Paul gets to. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus. Now, some translations say handiwork, masterpiece. They're all beautiful. Created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. Christianity is a living, reigning, victorious faith. We are the winners. We have already won because Christ is one. And we walk in the victory of the resurrected, supernatural Jesus Christ. The debt has been paid. It's been signed, sealed, and delivered. We're even seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now we go into the world not as victims. And I'm telling you, that is the danger of the church right now. Oh, things are so wicked. Yeah. I didn't think things would turn this quick either. We have turned into a pagan society like on a dime within the last few years. And things are wicked. But we're still victorious. We're still the winners. We're still the ones with the answers. We're still the ones who have the good news. So I ask this question wherever I go. What is your dream of divine desire? What does that mean? That means the place where God's grieving heart, the world's desperate needs, and your gift mix come together to bring the gospel's healing, hope, and help. Again, if we're victors in Christ, and we're God's redeemed, acting Christ-like every day, it's not only in our personal holiness, which is extremely important, but that also means as salt and light. Jesus called us the salt and light of the world. That's why this nation was founded as the most unique experience known to all of humanity that we would be a light to the nations. And the real leaders call us back to that original vision. So I want to ask you, what is your dream of divine desire? How are you working out God's workmanship? How are you being his handiwork? How are you walking as his masterpiece, his Rembrandt, his Van Gogh in this world? And I'm going to talk a lot more about this. But for me, 
I noticed 10, 15 years ago that no one was challenging men. Men were becoming wimps. And the church wasn't helping in any shape, way, or form. As a matter of fact, it was feminizing the men. It was masculizing the women. And it was decimating the gospel. And I thought, is it more than that? Yeah. Kids who grew up in fatherless homes. And listen to this. In 1960, when I was born, only one out of ten homes were without the father. By 1987, it was two out of five. Now today, more children are born in America without the father on the birth certificate than with the father on the birth certificate. We are living in a national, economic, spiritual, demonic depression of fatherlessness. And God has something to say. He said, I've commanded the fathers to teach the children these things. Society is falling apart. If a child is fatherless, listen to this, 80% of them are more than likely to grow up poor, become involved in drug and alcohol abuse, drop out of school, suffer from health and emotional problems. Boys are more likely to become involved in crime. Girls are more likely to become pregnant as teens. And the government solution, my friends, is to take more money from the families and give it to the people who aren't working and, and steal your money just like, just, just like Naboth's vineyard got stolen in 1 Kings 21 by King Ahab. But we have to respond to that. And maybe you have something where God's deep grief and the world's desperate need can come together with your gift mix as a victorious member of the body of Jesus Christ who's seated at the right hand, not of any pretension of your own, but through the power that resides in us through the resurrected, supernatural, returning Jesus Christ. We've got a lot of work to do, but praise God, he already did it in us. Can I get a smile, a nod, and an amen? Let's pray. Jesus, 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 we just praise you and thank you for all you are, and we are humbled by what we become in you. Now be with us, Lord. Let us know our condemnation of Ephesians 2, our justification following in 4, our glorification in Ephesians 2, 6, and Lord, our sanctification as your workmanship, your handiwork in Ephesians 2.10. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In your name alone do we pray and praise you. Amen and amen.